So go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 27 as we continue our study through the life of David. Maybe you've heard the old saying, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Such might be the case when you reflect back on the Second World War and you consider how uh, our, our democratic nation partnered with a, a communist nation to battle a socialist nation, for lack of better terms. When we were allies with a country that would one day be our enemy because we shared a common enemy. What's so very interesting about the next phase of David's life is he's going to make a very similar decision. In 1 Samuel chapter 27, what we see unfold is David choosing intentionally to side with the enemies of his nation, of his people, of his God, because in King Saul they had a common enemy. You may recall from a couple of weeks ago, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and David spared Saul's life when he was hiding in that cave. Um, actually, that was 1 Samuel chapter 24. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, David will spare Saul's life again, because after that initial sparing of Saul's life, Saul continued to pursue David. So twice, 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26, David is fleeing from Saul, having the opportunity to kill Saul, refusing that opportunity, announcing it to Saul, and Saul asking for forgiveness. But Saul won't relent. Saul keeps pursuing David because every once in a while, that spirit of jealousy descends on him, and he wants to kill David and prevent David from taking his throne. So Saul is in constant pursuit of David, and David makes the decision that the best thing for him to do at this point in his life is to leave the country and to go settle into the land of the Philistines. Now, this isn't the first time David makes this decision. He he did this once before when he initially was fleeing from King Saul, uh, when, he, when he lost his wife, when he lost his best friend, when he lost his mentor, when he lost his job in the kingdom. When he was on the run as a fugitive initially, he ended up making his way to Philistine territory, to the city of Gath, which is the city of Goliath. And he settles there, and the king, Achish, permits him to primarily because David acted like he had gone crazy. And so the king wasn't worried about him. Eventually, David had to leave and return back uh, to uh, Judah. But now, as he's been pursued by Saul so much, he's decided with his 600 men in tow and their families, he's decided that they're better off settling back in Philistine territory. Now, at this point in his career, what David is choosing to do is to become a mercenary. He's taking on the persona of a mercenary who is... Um, giving his services to the king of Philistia. And so David, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, is going to make the decision to go to the Philistines. Now here's the question I want us to consider this evening as we work through, really, this chapter, chapter 29 and 30. 
Chapter 28 is about Saul and the medium of Endor. It's kind of a, uh, takes away from the David story, so we're not going to focus on that. But the question I want us to consider tonight was David's decision to align with the Philistines right or wrong? That's what I want us to ponder tonight. Was it right for David to leave Israel and to go to Philistia and to offer his services to the king of Philistia? Or was that wrong? And the way I'm going to go about this is I'm going to answer it both ways and let you figure it out. So let's start with this. Let's consider how this may have been a wrong decision. So we'll start by reading 1 Samuel chapter 27 and verse 1 in just a moment. One reason why this might be a wrong decision is because of the way David went about making this decision. David's decision-making process may show that this was a wrong choice. 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Notice how David came to this conclusion. Was it by way of guidance from God, specifically? Did he consult with God and say, Hey, how do I need to handle this? Where do I need to go? What do I need to do? According to the text, no. According to the text, this decision is self-made. David said, or we're told in 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, that David said in his heart, or as another translation says, he said to himself, his conclusions drawn from his own personal perspective without seemingly any divine insight. Now, as we, we've noted in some previous um, classes, David distinguished himself from King Saul by his willingness to consult with God before he made big decisions. Such was the case throughout the early stages of his fugitive life. We noted how in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, David consulted God at least four different times before he would make a move. But something after chapter 23 changed. So you get to 1 Samuel 24, which we talked about two weeks ago, where David spares Saul's life. But, but the thing you'll notice in that chapter is, David moved forward in the cave, seemingly with the intent of hurting King Saul. And, his, and he repented of that intent after the fact. But it's interesting because David did not consult with God before he approached Saul in the recesses of that cave. His conscience got to him later, but in the moment, he made a move without talking to God, and he had to repent of that later. Then in 1 Samuel 25, which we, was our focus last week, David was mistreated and disrespected by some guy named Nabal. And his immediate reaction was vengeance. David moved toward Nabal with the intent of killing Nabal. And without divine intervention by way of Abigail, he would have fulfilled that. Once again, he failed to consult God before he moved, before he made a decision. And so here we have chapter 24, chapter 25 of 1 Samuel's moments and instances in which David didn't consult God and moved in the direction of sin, though thanks be to God that he did not sin in those instances. 
Now here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 27 after David has spared Saul's life for a second time and he decides to move into enemy territory. And that decision comes without ever seeking divine guidance. It's interesting to me because there are often times in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, where people make moves without God's direction and it usually has some sort of consequence. Think about Abraham. Really, Abram, I should say. When famine came on the land, he moved. Where did he move to? Egypt. And while there, what almost happened? He almost lost his wife. He came out of it a rich man because of God, but he almost compromised the covenant because he moved without God's direction. There are examples like that throughout the Old Testament where people move without God's, with, make a choice, a decision without consulting God first. And oftentimes when they do that, it has consequences. David's going to suffer some consequences we'll talk about in a moment. But for now, notice that his decision was a self made decision, not a divinely, not one with divine guidance, per se. It's also worth noting that David's decision was driven by pessimism. Notice that David in that in 1 Samuel 27 and verse 1 assumes that the worst is going to happen. He assumes that he's going to be killed by King Saul. He says, I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. What's interesting to me is he's received all of these promises from God. He's been told by God through multiple agents that he will be on the throne. Samuel told him that. Jonathan told him that. Abigail told him that. God has communicated with David through multiple agents to confirm that his appointment to the throne was true and would come to fruition. It's as if David has just come to the conclusion through all these years of being chased by King Saul that God's promises aren't going to come true. He's turned pessimistic about his future, and he has drawn the conclusion that he can't stay, stay within the borders of Israel and not die. It doesn't matter how many times God providentially prevents his death. It doesn't matter how many times God has promised his future. David has turned so pessimistic that he feels like he needs to leave Israel. So David's decision was self-made, and David's decision was driven by pessimism, but David's decision was also the result of rationalization. David reasons that, reasons that since he's going to be destroyed by Saul, then there's nothing better he can do than escape to the land of the Philistines. He rationalized living in enemy territory over being a fugitive in the land of God's people. And as I've already mentioned, the last time David stayed for any length of time in Philistine territory, he had to act insane in order to avoid being harmed by the Philistine people because the Philistine people had heard the songs. The Philistine people had heard that the people of Israel sang about Saul killing thousands, but David killing ten thousands. In fact, that song gets referenced three times in the book of 1 Samuel. The first time it's referenced is back in chapter 18, shortly after David, well, when David came back from slaying Goliath. 
The next two times it gets mentioned, it's mentioned by the Philistine people. The first time is in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 12, and the second time, 1 Samuel chapter 29 and verse 5. Every time David goes into Philistine territory, they bring up that song. It's on the greatest hit album, apparently. They can't get over the fact that David was celebrated like this. They never forget. The Philistine people never forget that David's the guy that slew Goliath. And they never let it go either. And so David is risking his life going into an area where people are so familiar with him. And why does he think returning to Philistine territory is going to be better this time around than it was last time? Psychologist Rollo May once said, Man is the only animal that runs faster when he has lost his way. Man is the only animal that runs faster when he has lost his way. Have you ever done that? Anybody ever gone to a corn maze and gotten confused? Anybody ever got separated from their parents when they were a kid? The thing is, what we do is we pick up our pace when we think we're lost. You've been hiking and, and, and can't figure out what trail you're supposed to be on? We pick up our pace. We don't stop and think. We start going faster. It's like that's what, it's kind of like what David's doing here. He's lost his sense of direction, and it's as if he's running in the wrong way, thinking he's going to find a solution. Because of, Paul's, because of Saul's pursuit of him, he's determined that he needs to take shelter as quickly as possible rather than rely on God's protection. And the end result of David's decision to move to Philistine territory is that he's going to find a false sense of security. Yes, it's, it's going to ultimately provide him some safety in the sense that Saul's going to give up pursuing him. It's going to accomplish that goal. We're told that at the end of verse 4. But it's also going to expose him to other dangers. We'll find out in chapter 29 that the Philistine military personnel don't like David being there. We're going to find out in chapter 30 that his family and the families of his men are captured while he's living in Philistine territory. See, true security for David had always been provided by God, whom he refers to in Psalm chapter 18 and verse 2 as my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's his description of God in Psalm chapter 18 and verse 2. But right now, instead of relying on God for that protection, he's relying on Philistines. He's relying on Achish. But David's decision-making process here might not be the only reason this was a wrong decision. It might be also evidenced by the consequences of his decision. Look at verse 2 through 4 with me of 1 Samuel chapter 27. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath, and David lived with Achish of God, at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. We will eventually find out that David spent a pretty significant amount of time in Philistine territory. 
16 months to be exact. That's in verse 7 of this chapter. 16 months. David, his family, and his followers are living in Philistine territory. Do you know what that means? That means for 16 months, they're living in an idolatrous environment. For 16 months, they're among people who serve and worship a deity known as Dagon. For 16 months, they are separated from the worship of Yahweh. For 16 months, they don't have access to the tabernacle. For 16 months, they don't have access to the sacrificial system. For 16 months, they're not observing the holy days the way they are instructed to. For 16 months, they're surrounded by the worship of a false god. Years later, the Jewish captives in Babylon would ask, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That comes from Psalm chapter 137 and verse 4. How can we sing the Lord's song from a foreign land? And I wonder if David and his men ever experienced the same feeling. That feeling like, hey, how, how can we truly worship the one true God when we're among this environment of all these fake gods? How can we worship the one true God when his ark is not among us? How can we worship the one true God when we are nowhere near the building he inhabits? How can we worship the one true God when we're not among the people he possesses? How can we worship the one true God when we're way over here and he seems to be way over there? Interestingly, it's believed by many scholars that David wrote no psalms during his time in Philistine territory. And I can't help but think that such extended exposure to that kind of environment could easily have led to some spiritual compromise. I mean, think about Lot for a moment. Here's a guy who is identified as righteous in the New Testament. Here's a guy who was exposed to the faith and the blessings God poured out on Abraham. Here's a guy who benefited from his life with Abraham to the point that he became so wealthy he had to separate from Abraham. And he chooses to live in this society around Sodom and Gomorrah. And he chooses to expose his family to Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what the consequences were for him? Sons-in-law that never believed and were killed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. A wife who became so enraptured with that community that despite angels telling them to leave and not look back, she chose to look back and became a pillar of salt. Daughters who apparently were so influenced by the sexual immorality of that community that when they were living in a cave with their father decided that a sexually immoral relationship with him was the only choice for them to ever have kids. Daughters that emulated the very practices they saw in that community. See, prolonged exposure to such an environment can have spiritual consequences. 
It's easy to compromise our relationship with and devotion to God when we have prolonged contact with people who don't share the same faith. That's why we receive warnings like bad company corrupts good morals. And that's why we receive warnings like do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that's why it's crucial to not forsake the assembling of ourselves because that assembling interrupts our exposure to a faithless, godless, idolatrous world. I don't know if David's time in Philistine territory, I, I don't know what level of effect it had on him, but they, he exposed his men and his family to a different faith system while they were over there. And while David is still going to be a man after God's own heart, I wonder, I wonder if there was some impact of this prolonged exposure manifesting itself in future generations of his. But he wasn't just exposing his family and his men to a different faith system. He also exposed them to a different value system. Here's something that stands out to me about David's time in Philistia. According to verse 8 and 9 of 1 Samuel 27, David raided and destroyed towns that were associated with the enemy nations of Israel while he resided in Philistine territory. You can, you can read about those. It was the Amalekites, it was the Gershites, and it was the, Gers, it was the Gershurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. All three of these were nations that God had given instruction for uh, the people of Israel to kick out of the land, to conquer. We'll talk about that more in a moment, but at first glance, that makes us think, oh, David has a noble undertaking. David's doing a good thing. He's fighting against the enemies of God while in this Philistine territory. But there is another side to the story. So let's pick up the reading in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verses, beginning in verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gershurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of Jeremielites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor a woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. Do you realize what the text is telling us here? It's telling us that every time David returned from a military campaign, took spoils to Achish, and then reported to Achish, he lied. Every time. He would be asked by Achish where he attacked, and David would give some extremely vague answer that made it sound like he was attacking Israelite cities. You could see that reference to the Negeb of Judah, Judah obviously being one of the tribes of Israel. The Jeremielites were a, a, one of those clans, 
And the Kenites, also a, a clan associated with that territory. But I think the Kenites, uh, that might also be a reference to, uh, who was it? Was it uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, that was a Kenite? I can't remember. Anyway, you have this reference to tribes and clans associated with Israel. He's intentionally deceiving Achish to win Achish's favor to some degree and to hide what he's doing. So Achish believed that David was working against the Israelites for the benefit of the Philistines. And since David intentionally obliterated all the citizens of the towns that he attacked, there was no way a report could get back to Achish that exposed who David was really attacking. And so David was leading a double life in the presence of the Philistines. Now, David's actions are not expressly condemned in the biblical text. But let's be honest. He's being deceitful. And I can't help but wonder whether or not David's decision to relocate to Philistia brought about a temporary compromise of his character. We must remember that Mosaic law said in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie. We're instructed in Colossians 3 and verse 9 not to lie to one another. We're instructed in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 to put away all deceit. We're instructed in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, which quotes one of David's very own psalms. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 quotes from Psalm chapter 34, verse 12 through 14, where David said, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. David wrote that. And what's David doing here? Being deceitful. Again, the Bible never condemns him for this. This doesn't rank up there with the Bathsheba sin. He's not getting a prophet coming to his house, knocking on the door saying, hey, we've got to talk. But I can't help but wonder, was his prolonged exposure to this culture, to this Philistine culture that didn't have the ideals of God, that didn't have the value system of the Israelite faith, did it impact his character to some degree, temporarily? I don't know. But these are reasons why some think that this is a wrong decision on David's part. And the consequences extend beyond just this faith system exposure and this value system exposure by the end of the story, you get to 1 Samuel chapter 30, and you find out that David is off with the Philistine military. He's sent back home. He gets home to a town that was given to him and his men and finds out it's been raided by the Amalekites. His wives, his children, the wives and children of his men are all taken captive by the Amalekites. And because of that, his own men, in 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6, start talking about killing him. I wonder if that, that consequence is partly due to his decision to be among these immoral, godless, idolatrous people. So maybe this was a wrong decision. But maybe it was also a right decision. Maybe 
This was an intentional decision. Here's why that might be a possibility. Let's move from the wrong to the right. Was David's decision to associate and relocate to the Philistines a right decision? Let's start by talking about the providence of God. We've been focused on 1 Samuel chapter 27. I want you to turn over to chapter 29, another fairly short chapter. But this continues the story uh, for us in this phase of David's life. See, David, in, in the chapter 29 and, and chapter 30 in particular, we're going to see God's providence working in the life of David. David, first and foremost, is providentially prevented from participating in the battle of Mount Gilboa. Now, that may not mean much to you, but let's read for just a moment. This is going to be a long reading. This is going to be the whole of 1 Samuel chapter 29, so bear with me. Now, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, because they were kind of like bodyguards for Achish. The commander of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he, may not, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Here's the thing. David didn't want to leave. The Philistines are marching to battle against the Israelites. And David was going to go into battle with the Philistines. He didn't want to leave. Achish had to order him to leave. See, the men of the Philistines were worried that when they start battling the Israelites, that David might say, no, no, no. I want King Saul to have favor with me again, so I'm going to start killing Philistines, and then King Saul will appreciate me again. They're worried about that. And so they convince Achish to release David, to not let David come with them. But David wants to go. He wants to go to war against the Israelites. He would have been allied with the Philistines in the battle at Mount Gilboa. Now, do you know what happens at that battle? You have to skip ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Let's read 
the first six verses of 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. If David had gone to that battle, he would have been present when King Saul and Prince Jonathan were killed. He would be forever known in Israel as having been a part of the alliance that killed the king. And David's the guy who twice refused to harm King Saul because he was the Lord's anointed. If he had gone to that battle, he would have been part of the group that harmed the Lord's anointed. God providentially intervened there, keeping David far from that battlefield, keeping David away from being the one who's guilty of bloodshed in the life of King Saul, and maybe more importantly for David's own conscience sake, the bloodshed of Jonathan. God providentially prevented David from being a part of that battle on Mount Goboah. And God providentially directed him to pursue the Amalekites. I've already made mention of this, but when David returned back to his home in a town called Ziklag that Achish gave to him, in his return from this Philistine campaign that Achish dismissed him from, he discovered that the Amalekites had burned his city and taken captive the families of him and his men. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 30, the first six verses. Now when David... And as men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had, become taken, had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. That's his homecoming. But look at how David responded to this crisis. Picking up there in verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. It's interesting. In chapter 27, I made the argument 
that David didn't consult with God, that David was living in a alternative among an alternative faith system and value system. But here we are in chapter 29, I mean chapter 30, after he's been dismissed from Philistine military duty, finding his life in a crisis. He, but in the midst of that, he finds strength in the Lord, and he, and he des- decides to consult the Lord. He uses the priest that's among him with that ephod that had the Urim and Thummim and however that thing worked. He could ask through the prophet a yes or no question, and God would give answer. He hadn't inquired of the Lord, according to the text, in a a few chapters, but this time he did. And he's providentially directed to pursue the Amalekites and even promised victory. Once again, God's providence shows through in this part of David's life. And then as they pursue the Amalekites, he's providentially aided in his pursuit. Look at chapter 30, verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. Now skip to verse 13. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. How lucky are they? Traveling through the southern Judean wilderness towards Sinai, and they happen to stumble upon the one person out there in the wilderness that can tell them where this group is. How lucky are they? Well, we know they're not lucky. As one commentator pointed out, their finding of the Egyptian was much more than chance. The location of the Egyptian by David's men at just the right place and time is an example of the providence of God. Right here in chapter 30, we're seeing, chapter 29 and 30, we're seeing God's involvement in the story of David. One, to protect him from, doing, from being a part of something that would hurt his reputation. And we see God's involvement in the life of David to rescue his family and the families of his men. The story will continue with David uh, finding the Amalekites and handily, handily defeating them to rescue his family. But the providence of God is not the only reason we can look at David's story and see how this was the right decision. And when I say the right decision and associate with the providence of God, is what I'm saying is the providence of God in David's story seems to indicate that God's not upset with his decision to move into Philistine territory. And I think the other reason God might not be upset is because David is constantly upholding his will. Let me explain what I mean. I've already referenced one thing, but if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 27, verses 8 and 9, we learn that David raided and destroyed towns that were associated with the enemy nations of Israel while he was residing in Philistine territory. 
I'll put that back up on the screen. 1 Samuel 27, verse 8 and 9, the Gershuites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. David is attacking these communities and these people who were particularly among the people that Mosaic, that the book of Deuteronomy said they should kick out of the land. So if we turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 through 18, the Lord said this, but in the cities of these people that, or Moses said this, I should say, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Now, I know the Gergeshites uh, and the uh, Amalekites and the Gerzites are not specifically mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 20. But what Deuteronomy chapter 20 is doing is it's announcing to Israel that when you come into the land of Canaan, you need to conquer everyone. You need to subjugate anyone that lives and you need to remove any, and you need to remove from your community and from the influence on your life all these idolatrous nations. Ah, if you read the, uh, the prior verses in Deuteronomy 20, they approach a city, and they're instructed to offer terms of peace. And the peace is, hey, we won't kill you as long as you're our, you're our servants. But if, if the city they approach and offer terms of peace to refuses it, ah, then you kill them. So they can become their servants or they can die. That's their two options. So in this situation, David is kind of continuing this policy. Philistine territory borders Judean territory on the, on the southwest side. And these Gergeshites, Gerzites, and Amalekites are on that southern border of, of both Philistine territory and Israelite territory. David is using his time living among the Philistines to take out enemies of Israel. He's continuing the policy of serving the Lord or serving the Lord's will according to Deuteronomy chapter 20. So David defeated God's enemies while living in Philistine territory. He's upholding God's will while living in Philistine territory. And particularly the Amalekites seem to be the primary fixture because obviously they're the ones who eventually come and take his family captive. The Amalekites, that should be familiar to you. That should, they're, they're the one of the three that it should be familiar. Do you remember when they were last appeared in the text? It's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. When Saul was instructed to devote to destruction all the Amalekites, And Saul failed to do that. And now David is facing off with the enemies that God told Saul to get rid of. You also have, what was that?
is also with the Amalekites in particular, uh, God uh, ordered their annihilation because of the way they mistreated the Israelites on the Exodus. So that, that's uh, something else to keep, keep in mind. But what Kurt's point is that, that uh, in particular, the slaying of the inhabitants of the land under God's direction is in large part due to their abominations. But also he's saying that um, David's being strategic in a, uh, in David's inhabit or habitation with the Philistines, he's using it as a strategic, strategic advantage to fulfill God's purpose. I think that's a summary of what Kurt was trying to say. Because of their abominations, whether it's the Philistines or these other nations, God intends for them to uh, be removed, and David's fulfilling that using a strategic implant with the Philistines. Uh, so not only is David upholding God's will by defeating God's enemies, I want to take us to this next one. David's upholding God's will by maintaining God's laws. Now, we already mentioned that David and his men came across that Egyptian servant out there in the wilderness. I skipped a verse and a half of that story to use it here. When they found that Egyptian servant who had been left out in the wilderness for three days, they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. When David and his men found this guy out in the wilderness, they didn't torture him to exact information out of him. They showed hospitality. They showed compassion. By caring for this abandoned servant, David upheld God's standard of love your neighbor as yourself, of showing hospitality. David's hospitality to this man, one commentator said, is reminiscent of Abigail's offering to David in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 18 that we studied last week. She too brought water and food and raisin cakes to David. And it displays David's adherence to God's value system. He's upholding God's standards of compassion and hospitality in this moment as he deals with this man. But that's not the only way he's maintaining God's laws. During his pursuit of the Amalekites, some of David's men had to be left behind because they were too exhausted. We read about this in verse 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel 30. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. You have to remember, they had been marching with the Philistines, they had to march back home, then discover all their families are gone, and then start marching another way. So some of the guys were just flat out exhausted, and they had to stay behind. Now after David defeated the Amalekites, we're told that some of his men didn't want to share the spoils of war with those that didn't accompany them into battle. So this picks up in verse 18. Bear with me as we get through this part. David re recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people, drove the livestock before them, and said, This is David's spoil. 
Then David came to the 200 men who had, who had been found too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bazor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So some of David's men didn't want to share. And David said it's not going to work that way. Because guess what? We didn't earn that. God gave it to us. On top of that, David enforced this policy that wasn't really his policy. David's enforcing a protocol that came from God way back in Numbers chapter 31, particularly in verse 25 through 28, or actually 25 through 27. The Lord said to Moses, this is after they defeated the Midianites. The Lord said to Moses, take the count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and of beast, you and Eleazar the priest, and the heads of the father's houses of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. God's policy in Numbers chapter 31 was for the spoils of war to be divided among the men who fought and the ones who didn't. And you know what? Joshua continued that policy. If you get to Joshua chapter 22, in verse 7 and 8, when Joshua dismisses three tribes, he allows the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh to return to their homes, which were on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's the territory they chose. Everybody else was on the western side of the Jordan River, but they couldn't stay there until they helped everybody else conquer their enemies. And so now they're getting to go home, and these are the instructions Joshua gave to them. When Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. It's a sharing the plunder policy. In other words, God expected the spoils from victories that he orchestrated to be shared between fighting men and non-fighting men. So as one commentator said, David did not make a new law, but rather laid down a ruling on the basis of God's law regarding plunder. He's upholding God's laws, maintaining God's laws all the while he's dealing in the, or living in this Philistine territory. And one last thing. David blessed God's people. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 26 through 31. When David came to Ziklag, this is after he caught up and defeated the Amalekites, got the spoils of war. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And it goes on to list the towns in southern Judah that he sent this to. David comes home victorious to Philistine territory, then takes the spoils he's obtained and sends them back to families in Israel. David is being generous with his people, even though he's not yet their king. This is before Saul has even died. Even though David's not living among them, even though David's not reigning over them, David 
is blessing them. Because that victory wasn't his, it was God's. And he was going to make sure God's people benefited from God's victory. See, David, while in Philistia, he's defeating God's enemies, he's maintaining God's laws, and he's blessing God's people. For that reason, maybe it wasn't a wrong choice to move to the Philistines. Maybe, despite the fact the text doesn't talk about it, it was God's choice for him to be there so that he could continue fulfilling God's will. That concludes our study for the evening, but let us, let us close out with a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, thank you for our opportunity to study from your word, particularly to look at the life of David and, and, and see how you work behind the scenes, see how, see how we can be in the process of blessing you no matter what circumstance we find our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to represent you. Help us, Lord, to bless others. Help us, Lord, to hold up your standards and hold up your will and hold up your expectations and your commands. Help us to, to, to lead lives that glorify you in every way. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.